This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, March 7th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Sunnyside Committee discusses housing rent structure. Telluride figure skating gets funky. Capital Conversation talks state checkbook and incarceration and a mountain weather forecast. But first... Whether you listen on the porch here in town or across the country or world, KOTO's live broadcasts of the Telluride Bluegrass Festival and Blues and Brews Festival keeps you connected to the energy and music of Town Park in the summer. It may be snowing, but now is your chance to show love and support for your community radio station. Go to KOTO.org to donate. And thank you. Telluride lost a member of its community over the weekend. Stephen Kenneth Tilton was found dead in his home on Sunday evening. He was 65 years old. The cause and manner of death are under investigation. Crippen Funeral Home will attend to services. Tilton is survived by his siblings, Debbie, Zoe Ann, and Mike, his mother, Cynthia, and his children, James and Morgan. Telluride and San Miguel County's Sunnyside Housing Project is moving along, although at a delayed pace. I can say now that it, we are not picking up steam. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but uh, we are continuing with making progress on the pro- project. But it looks like with the, um, the uh, delays caused by supply chain issues and just, you know, the lack of labor, being able to bring additional labor onto the project, we are looking at more of a um, late June to early July, I would like to just rather say summer of um, of next, this summer's 2022 rather than early summers, which we've been messaging before. That's Telluride Program Manager Lance McDonald speaking at a Sunnyside Committee meeting last week. A delay in project completion also means a delay in the lottery to determine who will live there. According to McDonald, the town aims to hold the lottery when the project is 70 to 80 percent complete. We are probably, I would say, um, 57 percent complete, 55 to 57 percent complete. And I had hoped that at this stage we would be 64 percent or 65 percent complete. So, you know, we're, we're completing the project. It's just that we're some percentage points behind right now. And with the offseason timing being what it is, it's certainly... Um, would make sense to do the lottery stuff after offseason. The committee was in agreement to begin the lottery process with applications going up in May, once the community comes back from the offseason. In total, the Sunnyside project will consist of 30 units with a mix of apartments, tiny homes, and townhomes. Telluride and the county may reserve several of the units for employees and relocating residents of the Shandoka F building, which the town plans to rebuild, and an in-home childcare unit. With the date for the lottery in mind, the committee also discussed what a rent structure for the project could look like. The Sunnyside Committee is comprised of members of Telluride Town Council and the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners. Any final decision on rent will need to be approved by the full Town Council and Commissioner Board. As such, the discussion is just that. But it does give an idea on where the committee is going. 
When thinking about the rent structure for developments moving forward, McDonald says the town needs to take into account the fact that even for those making more money, there still isn't housing available. We're in a different world now, certainly, and the need for rental housing goes across all different income groups. So um, that's what our, I think, as we look forward on these pro- this project and other projects, we need to start incorporating that concept into our um, pricing, our planning, our AMI limits. This can't be just like we've done every other time. It has to be different because our community that we're trying to house with this rental housing is different. AMI is area median income. McDonald lays out three possible scenarios for the rent structure. The first is what happens if we just go straight 95% AMI rents across the board, all unit types. There would be different caps for how much someone could make and still be eligible for a unit, but the rent would be equal. The second option creates two levels. One would be clustered at a low AMI for those who make less money. The others would extend higher for the initial rent rent would go up between the targeted AMIs. The last option would create a base rate for rent and then adjust based on how much money an individual makes. You have a policy where the actual income sets the rent if the income is higher than the AMI target for that unit. McDonald says the project could set a minimum rent at 30% of income or move it lower. For Telluride Town Council member Geneva Shawnette, she is uncomfortable with charging more for those who make more money. We've never done sort of incremental rent charges like this. And this feels like a step of like, it just feels weird that you get a raise and your rent goes up. But County Commissioner Hillary Cooper sees it differently. I mean, I want to give everybody an equal opportunity to work their way up and to save the same amount of money, et cetera. And I feel like the only way, the the equitable way to do this is to assign um, it equitably. And that is 30% or whatever we decide, 25, 30% of your income. Town Council member Adrian Christie thinks the second option, which incrementally raises rent based on AMI, fits a happy medium. Our like society and our perception is, Um, our norm is to defer to like fairness as being like an even thing as opposed to fairness being like what we think of as equity over time. So, uh, you know, I I, I have less concerns about that. County manager Mike Bordonia agrees. I think it gets a it gets to some of the equity concerns that I have and that have been expressed, maybe not fully, but it also provides a little easier, easier administration in my interpretation and clarity for the potential residents. After nearly two hours of discussion, the committee came to consensus for having two tiers of rent. The first targeting, in general, an 80% AMI with a cap at 120. A higher tier would aim at 120% AMI with a cap at 200. At current numbers, that would put rent ranging from roughly $1,200 a month to $1,800 a month for a one-bedroom. AMI numbers fluctuate, so the rent amounts are not set in stone. In fact, the whole rent structure is still not set in stone. The Sunnyside Committee plans to create a formal recommendation at its March 23rd meeting, and both Telluride Town Council and the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners will need to vote on that recommendation before any finalized decisions can be made. Telluride is obviously known for its skiing. 
Locally, hockey draws a crowd. Lesser known, maybe, is the Telluride Figure Skating Club. But if you ask Alicia Daniel, all the sports feed off of each other. I mean, I think it's great、um, here to. To be well-rounded as an athlete, and、um, skating is a great skill that can, you know,、um, transfer over to skiing as well. If if kids are skiers,、um, using your edges kind of is a similar, you know, movement as using your edges when you ski. Daniel is the director and head coach of the Telluride Figure Skating Club. Of course, helping with other sports isn't the only reason to figure skate. It's a great skill for kids to learn balance,、um, you know, dedication,、um, you know, coordination. Obviously, is, is needed,、um, and you know, it's just really fun to go out there and learn new skills and keep progressing every season. And you know, if you want to like interpret some music, it's fun to just put some music on and go out there and show your personality and have fun. This week, a number of young people will be taking to the ice for their final figure skating presentation of the season. The theme for the show is disco. We have some solo performances. We have big group performances. Some of the kids have put together and choreographed their own duets, trios, quartets. I guess you call them. Um, and yeah, it's just gonna be like just fun、um, and showcase their skills. This season, the ages run the gambit. Our youngest performer is three years old,、um, and our oldest performer is seventeen. So、um, we have a, a skater this year. Maya Geiger, she's a senior. She's graduating. It's pretty awesome that she stuck with it this whole time and is still skating. Daniel says the performance is an opportunity to see all the skill and technique of the young people. It's also a chance to witness the grace, beauty, and fun of figure skating. I think what's so cool about skating too is like you know you're on this tiny blade that can just carry you across the ice as fast as you want to go, obviously in control. Um, but in figure skating, we focus actually the majority on skating backwards because that's how we enter the majority of our jumps that we do.、Um, so it just like feels so great to fly around the rink and feel the breeze in your hair, and then to spin really fast and you know、uh, launch yourself in the air and rotate. The Telluride Figure Skating end of season performance will take place on Wednesday, March 9th. At 3:45 p.m. at the Hanley Ice Rink, the community is encouraged to attend. State lawmakers are looking at Colorado's checkbook and talking incarceration. This week on Capital Conversation, KOTO's State House reporter Scott Franz shares the latest from Denver. Hey Scott, thanks for taking a couple minutes to chat with me. Hey Julia. So the first thing I wanted to chat with you about is a new bill the state legislature is debating today that will look at、um, 
letting residents kind of more easily track where state funding is going. And I was wondering if first you can just explain what this bill would do. Right. So it, it is an interesting one. Um, it would essentially require the state to disclose uh, in every checkbook entry you know, who the money is going to or who the state is getting the money from. Um, you know, right now there's a lot of entries that already include that information, but um, if you look through Beyond My Checkbook, you'll actually find tons of entries where the the vendor name is just left blank. Um, so one lawmaker from Grand Junction, Janice Rich, says, you know, without requiring you know, the essentially pay-to-the-order-of person um, in an online checkbook, that the website is useless. Um, so her bill aims to require that. Um, I will say, you know, I, I talked to her about the bill. It was scheduled initially for its first hearing um, several weeks ago, but at the last minute it was pulled off. So I, you know, went and I wanted to know why. And she said that Governor Polis's office had expressed an interest in it. Um, and it's my understanding that they were trying to um, discuss a little more about, you know, what exactly will be required. Um, but it'll be interesting to see, you know, where that state falls because I can say I personally use this tool for, um, you know, lots of my reporting, whether it was tracking where COVID relief money is going or, you know, a story I did looking at, you know, the state paying for Texas journalists' travel expenses with the, the goal of um, securing um, positive tourism coverage. You know, a, a lot of those stories are, are generated by disclosures that you find in the online checkbook. Yeah, I mean, does it seem like the notion behind this bill is that, you know, maybe there is something that the government is spending money on or getting money from that residents maybe need to know because maybe there's something nefarious or something there? Or is it more of just like, hey, let's have as much transparency in government, but we think that it's kind of more housekeeping to to have this. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think it's, I haven't heard of a specific, you know, allegation that has generated this specific bill. I think supporters of this bill will say that the more transparency, the better, right? That if you can see where the, who the money is going to, you know, that gives the public an avenue to check for, say, conflicts of interest or, um, you know, just to, to see who is, who's receiving money so that, um, you know, people can do due diligence and, and essentially, you know, they created this as a, a check on government spending. You reported on a bill that Governor Jared Polis has actually now signed into law that will seal criminal records of folks in Colorado. Can you share a little bit about what this new law will do? Sure. So it's, it's commonly referred to as clean slate legislation. And, and what it does is it it automatically seals criminal records, you know, after someone has served their time, um, you know, paid the penalty for the crime they were convicted of. And then after a certain waiting period, and if they, um, you know, don't um, have any more um, criminal activity for a certain amount of time, then that record becomes sealed. And as they seek jobs and housing and things like that, it it doesn't become... Uh, a factor for them anymore. And, you know, there was really powerful testimony from folks at the Capitol who said, you know, their lives had been upended by things they did, you know, seemingly 
minor things they did years ago that they, you know, had served their time for, paid their penalty for. Um, you know, the way the current system works is it's only some kinds of um, drug offenses that are automatically sealed, but this extends it to any crime that would qualify for someone to, to have the record sealed. It would switch that from, you know, the person having to take steps to seal it to, to automatically doing that. I've seen studies that, you know, estimate there are more than a million Coloradans who currently qualify to have records sealed, um, but haven't taken that step. So this this would be a game changer for for quite a few folks. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with me today. Hey, my pleasure, Julia. Thank you. That was State House reporter Scott Franz reporting from Denver. Nothing beats a costume party in Telluride, and this week the Telluride Adaptive Sports Program is providing another opportunity with its annual Blue Party and Apres Ski event. Costumes are optional, but why not don your best blues or skiing jeans? The party will feature dancing with the musical stylings of Soulgrass Band Buffalo Commons. There will also be a live auction in addition to an online auction with one-of-a-kind items. The TASP Blue Party fundraiser will take place at the Transfer Warehouse on Friday, March 11th from 5 to 8 p.m. Tickets are available at TellurideAdaptiveSports.org. A new report from the United Nations panel says intense drought and earlier runoff from mountain snowpack will make water scarce in the Colorado River Basin, stressing economies and increasing pressure on limited supplies of groundwater. Abby Burke with the Audubon Society says when people see drought play out in wildfires and mudslides, they're more compelled to action. I think it comes down to personal engagement with the climate change impacts coupled with the information from the report, that will spur change in people and spur policy change, public will, political will, um, all across the scope. The report says the dire conditions are increasing public and government attention to issues of water scarcity. Road work on a four-mile stretch of Highway 50 between Montrose and Gunnison, known as the Little Blue Creek Canyon Project, resumes this week, weather permitting. As KVNF's Laura Palmasana reports, commuters should expect delays and closures as work ramps up for the season. The Little Blue Creek Canyon Project started in April of last year and halted construction right before Christmas. Now, after a winter hiatus, the project is starting up again. Drivers can expect alternating one-way traffic Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. until 5.30 p.m. with no overnight closures or work on the weekends. However, project spokesperson Kathleen Vonatovich says full and nighttime closures aren't far off. We do not have an exact date, but it could happen in March toward the end of the month and could happen in early April. It's really weather dependent. She says the project is behind schedule. It was projected that we wouldn't have these nighttime closures so much in 2022 and full-time day closures, but now we will as we catch up for the work that we missed last year with having to keep the road open due to the Glenwood Canyon mudslide. Those mudslides closed a portion of I-70, causing traffic to be rerouted to US-50. Last June, the project also took a deadly turn when 69-year-old subcontractor Ricardo Rick Batista was killed by rockfall while operating a mini-excavator. 
Ronatovich explains what work is planned for the Little Blue Creek Canyon this year. We still have lots of rock work to do, but now we're getting into more of the deep infrastructure work that's going to happen in the corridor with utilities, moving much more dirt and more rock blasting. She says more than 5,000 people subscribe to the project's text messaging system. And I really think that's the best way to get information if there's fluctuations in the travel schedule. People can text US 52 to sign up for project text alerts. For KVNF, I'm Laura Palmisano. Researchers from the University of Utah have been measuring the natural movement of rock formations in southeastern Utah. A recent study published in Seismological Research Letters finds towers and fins resonate much like beams in buildings. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom spoke with a researcher about the good vibrations all around us. The sandstone towers within the Valley of the Gods have stood silently for hundreds of millions of years. Those monoliths are sacred to the Navajo. Some interpret them as warriors frozen in time. And their silhouettes have become part of the Utah desert's iconic still life. But according to new research, they're not as still as you might think. That ominous sound is the 147-foot Eagle Plume Tower. Well, it's actually a representation of the tower's movement. What you're listening to is not sound that is produced by the towers, but the actual data from the seismometer sitting on top of the tower. So it's the actual vibrations of the tower. That's Riley Finnegan. She's a PhD student at the University of Utah, and with help from experienced climbers, her team placed a seismometer on Eagle Plume's flat top. The vibrations that were recorded aren't perceptible to human ears, but speed up the frequency and you get this sound. We haven't done anything else to the data. They're, they're not altered, and we get to listen to it. The research is part of a wider effort to record the unique vibrations of rock formations across Utah. The state's towers and arches are constantly swaying and twisting like skyscrapers, depending on weather or even distant earthquakes. All rock arches, all rock towers are constantly vibrating. There's energy in their environment, like wind, for instance, but also energy from within the earth. Finnegan says that researchers could use this data and future recordings to monitor the structural health of beloved formations or cultural sites. A couple years ago, the first sections of the popular Jaw Man climbing route collapsed on Sister Superior Tower near Moab. If there was enough data, scientists in theory could have known the formation was weakening. We can use the natural frequencies of the tower to understand if there's been any structural change within the tower. And so, you know, we could come back every year and make another measurement and see if these frequencies are changing and there might be some damage being caused to the tower. So this is kind of like a starting point in that way. Besides any practical applications, Finnegan says the research provides a new way to interpret our environment. If you look at the desert landscape, it looks still often, but to really know that, you know, there's the movement within this landscape. It's not dead. It's, it's active. This study compiled data for 14 rock towers and fins over the span of several years, and the results largely agreed with scientists' predictions on what those vibrations would be. As more data is collected, scientists could better estimate the inherent movement of rock structures around the world. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for a 30% chance of snow showers tonight with mostly cloudy skies. The low is around zero with wind chill values as low as negative 10. 
Tuesday should be sunny with a high near 30 degrees. Tuesday night calls for increasing clouds with a low around 10. Wednesday, there is a 70% chance of snow showers with a high near 30 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 30 miles per hour. Wednesday night, there's an 80% chance of snow showers with a low around 15. This has been the news for Monday, March 7th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. We would like to thank everyone who has donated to Kodo during our winter fund drive. A huge thank you to Joni Tinker, Juan Ortega, Seth Weatherfield, Rosie Cusack, Michael Vranca, Linda Razzo, William Halstead, Rufe Bellicelli, Sylvia Kuzman, Heather Sackett, Lance Waring and Laura Colbert, Robin Watkinson, Jennifer Ogilvie, Hannah Max, Chris Kwasniewski, Amy Levick, Dwight and Amy Oliver, Drury Penn Jr., Todd and Addie Pearson, Catherine Warren, Helen Ballard, Palma Tevener, Kathy Green, Laura Holt-Brown, Jamie Holmes, Todd Brown, Gray Rembert, Andrew and Sarah Milder, Jim Lobey, Kevin Swain, Ken Bailey, Brandy Podolsky, and Hannah Richman. Thank you all so much. And now, a personal commentary. Equal pay for equal work should be a no-brainer. However, in 2022, pay inequity persists. Did you know Caucasian women earn only 80 cents for every dollar a Caucasian man makes? It's even worse for women of color, with black women earning 65 cents, Latina women earning 55 cents, and American Indian women earning 60 cents for every dollar a Caucasian man makes. Aside from being unequal and unjust, pay inequity can greatly impact a woman negatively throughout her life, including lessening a woman's ability to care for her family. Half of working women are their family's breadwinner. Pay inequity weakens a woman's ability to leave an abusive situation if she cannot support herself or her children alone. It lessens her ability to pay off educational debt. Women currently hold two-thirds of the nation's student debt. And pay inequity diminishes a woman's ability to save for retirement and the social security accumulated because of having earned less throughout her life. On Tuesday, March 8th, the Progressive Women's Caucus, in partnership with the San Miguel Resource Center, will bring attention to the issue of pay inequity through a good old-fashioned bake sale. As a long-standing tradition in celebration of International Women's Day, the Equal Pay Bake Sale aims to illustrate the current pay inequity rates. So for example, a man who identifies as Caucasian will pay $1 for a baked good, while a woman who identifies as American Indian will pay 60 cents. Along with the opportunity to purchase delicious baked goods, passerbys will have the chance to learn about pay inequity and what we can do to change it. So stop by the Equal Pay Bake Sale on Tuesday, March 8th, anytime between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. at the community table at Pine in Colorado. If you are interested in baking some goods to contribute to the bake sale, 
give us a call at 970-708-0524. And don't forget today and every day to smash, smash, smash the patriarchy. Thanks, Kodo. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.